your Bible church, I would ask that you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Good morning to you. Thank you. American missionary John Chow died on November 16th, 2018. He had gone ashore onto North Sentinel Island, which is off the east coast of India. It was his heart's desire to reach the Sentinelese people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us this morning, let me explain the gospel of Jesus Christ to you. It begins by telling you this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Your conscience bears witness to you that you're a sinner. You've broken God's law. That's why you feel guilty. You were made to worship God, but you love to worship yourself continually. And as a result, God is going to give you justice. He condemns his enemies to live in hell forever because they only know rebellion to him. That's bad news. The gospel is good news. The gospel is the fact that not all men and women will go to hell. Jesus is the Son of God, and he died to pay for the sins of those who believe in him. The people who repent and turn from their sin and their self-worship and turn to Jesus and worship him alone and love and serve him all the days of their life, those people's sins are forgiven, and they receive eternal life to live with God in heaven forever. And what's more is this. God saves his enemies. It is not the case that you simply have to accept Jesus into your heart. That's not it at all. You need to understand God saves people who hate him. He's not asking you to turn from your sins as if you're going to be the one that acts first. He is going to act on rebel sinners first and cause them to turn and repent of their sin. This is an incredible gospel because it means this. Any of y'all can be saved. Isn't that good news? Like you didn't come from anywhere where you were doing such bad stuff that God can't save that. Nor did you have to get yourself cleaned up before you came in here and had him save you either. He's that powerful. He's that good. This is good news for you and for the Sentinelese people on the North, on, on North Sentinel Island because they are people who are rebels to God's will, just as we all are. All 200 or so of the Sentinelese people will die and go to hell, except that God grants salvation to any one of them. Romans 10.14 tells us, How then will they call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? John Chow was God's preacher for the North Sentinelese people. John cared about the salvation of the North Sentinelese people more than he cared about his own safety. He made every preparation necessary to bring the gospel to them. And ultimately, John Chow was murdered by the very people that he came to save, the people of North Sentinel Island. Was John Chow a colonizer deserving death for violating the sovereignty of the 200 people on North Sentinel Island? Or was John Chow the agent of God's mercy for the North Sentinelese, seeking to give them life, even eternal life? What kind of satanic influence has overcome a people when they are hostile to outsiders? What kind of demonic presence exists when it is okay to murder strangers? John Chow was not the first visitor to be killed by the North Sentinelese. A fisherman or two of them, I should say, drifted ashore in January of 2006. And they were murdered with axes, only to later have their bodies hung from poles on the shoreline like scarecrows to intimidate and deter any future visitors. Brothers and sisters, our battle is not against the North Sentinelese people. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is with spiritual forces of wickedness, Satan and his demons who operate in the hearts of people that belong to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Don't you understand, brothers and sisters, that this life is not about you gathering possessions? What a joke! It's not about you collecting cars and houses for yourself. It's not about holding on to a national heritage. It's not about getting your own 10 acres and living off the grid. You must understand, you have been called as Christians into warfare. We're engaged in a proxy war here on earth against Satan, a war that already, victory has already been declared. 
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because Satan is a creature of God and Satan has no power and authority over God. God is proving the strength of his love and goodness now on earth in the face of Satan's evil and the influences he wields over all of humanity. James Montgomery Boyce says, the Christian life is no genteel engagement. It's no exercise class. Christianity, he says, is warfare. We're engaged in spiritual battle. John Chow was engaged in spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare can lead to our death. And on our way to death, we must be reminded what John MacArthur says about this spiritual warfare. He says, first of all, this is God's battle. And it can be fought only in God's power and in God's armor. You're in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says, finally, finally. He says, finally, after all that I've told you about God's power to elect, adopt, redeem, and save a people for his own possession in chapters 1 and 2, after all that I've told you about how he's putting them together in the church under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, stacking each individual person who is saved uniquely by God, stacking them together in unity, diversity, and purity in the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of them. After all that I've told you about how you should walk worthy of the calling into which you have been called, notice you didn't call yourself into this, you have been called into this. This is a calling. After I've told you about walking worthy, told you about walking in love, about walking wisely and being filled with the Spirit and redeeming relationships. After all that I've told you, finally, after all of these glorious truths, Paul says to us, stand firm. Satan is your enemy. The battle is won and, get this, you are responsible to fight. The question then should pierce through your mind. How can I fight this battle? How can we stand firm? And I would hope you understand that you're talking about the God of the universe who called you, elected you, adopted you, saved you, pulled you into this fight. Do you think that he hasn't prepared you for this battle? The plans are here. They're in the text. So let's read the text together from Ephesians 6.10 and consider God's strength has already secured our victory, and we are responsible to stand strong against Satan in the armor that God has so graciously supplied. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 is where Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth, to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. To the glory of God, bad weather grounded the majority of the German Air Force on this day, June 5th, 1944. Probably looked a lot like today, didn't it? Which allowed the Allied forces in World War II the cloud cover required to make final battle preparations before launching Operation Overlord, the Allied invasion of the beaches of Normandy on June 6th, 1944. On June 5th, in the evening, 1,000 British bombers dropped 5,000 tons of bombs on German gun positions near the beaches of Normandy and France. At the same time, 3,000 Allied ships crossed the English Channel 
in preparation for the largest amphibious operation in history that we know as D-Day. Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany had delusions of global domination. Hitler himself wanted to become the Cosmo Crater, the ruler of the world, just like Satan himself. Germany and Hitler's demonic evil included the extermination of six million Jews. Their satanic evil ended only after Allied forces made the necessary preparation on June 5th and stormed the beaches the following day in Normandy on D-Day, June 6, 1944. D-Day, then, is the picture for us. It presents a very clear picture for us. Satanic evil seeks to have its way in this world. Responsible men and women make necessary preparations to resist Satan and his evil. And God blesses the righteous opposition of satanic forces. Brothers and sisters, Operation Overlord and D-Day are physical world reminders that a spiritual war is raging all around us. The battlefront is right outside your front door. It's in our public education system, it's in our health care system, it's in higher education. When you have government officials telling you that boys can be girls and girls can be boys, we've gone to violating Genesis 1 and 2 so plainly. The new war is set. The battlefield, the satanic battlefield rages, and it's happening right now. Paul never wants us to lose sight of the battle and the enemy that we face. His full expectation is that genuine believers, true Christians, will face our enemy with honor and valor, trusting in the strength of God while standing firm in the spiritual armor that God has supplied for us. You see, spiritual warfare, as you should well know, is not a battle for anyone who's faint of heart. It's happening all around us right now. How many of you are tempted at this very moment to check sports scores while the pastor is preaching? That's spiritual warfare. How many of you brought a coffee in and it's sitting right by your foot right now and you're tempted to drink that thing? That's spiritual warfare. How many of you need a little Facebook or Instagram fix while church is happening? That's spiritual warfare. Who among us is suffering physically or your spouse is suffering physically and it's affecting you spiritually and causing you to lose focus? That's spiritual warfare. And who among us is suffering emotionally because of relationship failures? Do you have a person who is a thorn in your flesh? That's spiritual warfare. What are the chances that someone here is dealing with all of these struggles right now? What must you do? How will you arrive at spiritual warfare victory? You see the answer there in the text where Paul says in chapter 6, verse 14, he says, Stand firm, therefore. Stand, stand firm is from the Greek verb histemi, which means to stand firm, to offer resistance, to hold one's ground. And when used in a military context, the expectation would be to fight with resilience, to keep critical territory that has already been won. Don't make us fight for this ground again. Stand firm on the territory that we have already established victory in. This is the fourth of four times that he stay me, stand firm. The verb stand appears in the text. One time in the negative. We talked about antihistamine the other week. Clint Arnold says, stand firm, functions as the heading for the remainder of the passage, and the repetition of the verb strongly emphasizes the goal of the struggle. Don't lose ground. Resilience is pictured in this text. The theme is resilience. Church, we face a great spiritual battle with a powerful enemy which requires that we stand in the place that God has already taken us to in victory and that we put up a fight defensively resisting Satan, his demons, and all of his schemes that he runs through the hearts of sinful men and women. The only opportunity for us, the only option is to stand firm and to arrive at victory. We can lose no ground in this spiritual battle. Our spiritual sanctification will go on. It will happen to the glory of God. The word therefore in the text is our indication that detailed exhortation will follow, telling us what ought now to be done by reason of what has been previously said. 
This is exactly what we see in the text. Paul has already introduced the armor of God. He introduced it twice. And now Paul is compelled to explain in greater detail the full armor of God, which he has commanded believers to put on in verse 11 and to take up in verse 13. And so, so that we might, verse 14, stand firm. And so we see here in the text that Paul explains six spiritual armor expectations required to stand firm against Satan's schemes. Paul here in the text amplifies six assets of God's armor which demand our action and demonstrate our spiritual warfare success. So we need to ask the question then, what six assets of God's armor demand our action and demonstrate our spiritual warfare success? That our warfare success has already been given to us and it requires our responsibility and our obedience. Well, you see them there in the text. They're very familiar to you, I would hope. In verse 14, you see, number one, the belt of truth. And you see, number two, the breastplate of righteousness. In verse 15, you see the shoes of the gospel of peace. In verse 16, you see the shield of faith. Number four. In verse 17, you see the helmet of salvation. Number five. And you see, number six, the sword of the spirit. In verse 17. These six assets of God's armor are required for spiritual warfare success. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. This will serve as our outline for today and for a couple of more weeks even. Today we'll have the opportunity to tackle two of these assets of God's armor, just the first two. Friends, you are vulnerable to Satan's schemes if you do not suit up in all six assets of God's armor that are here in the text. Can you imagine watching the NHL playoffs as I had the privilege to do yesterday with some friends and see a goalie standing on his skates in blue jeans wearing his jersey. Blue jeans and a jersey and skates without leg pads, a chest protector, glove, blocker, helmet, stick. That would be ridiculous. Who wants to catch a slap shot in the shin at 100 miles an hour? None of you do. So if, if goalies in the NHL wear their full armor when they hit the ice, how could you ever think to enter one day into the spiritual warfare without the full armor of God. So let's look then at these six assets of armor, beginning with number one in your notes. The first of six assets of God's armor, number one is in verse 14, the belt of truth. The belt of truth. You see the belt of truth in the text when Paul says in chapter 6, verse 14, stand firm therefore, having girded your loins with truth. And many of your minds are saying, what on earth is gird your loins? How do you gird them with truth? Well, allow me to explain this imagery for you as you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12 at verse 11. The Greek word translated having girded is the verb perizonumi. And it means to buckle a belt around, to dress for service, to gird up. In the first century, men wore dresses. No, that's not true. Men wore tunics. Men wore tunics. And a tunic was a square piece of fabric with three holes in it, one for your head and two for your arms. Today, we would simply call this a poncho, right? How many athletes wear their ponchos? Not at all. It's not fast. It's not efficient. It's not meant for speed. This tunic was like wearing a blanket. And all the extra fabric, it would restrict the movement of the men who wore them. Paul is saying to these men, cinch in all the loose fabric that covers your life with the belt of truth. He's saying to us, tighten your loose garments to the core of your body. Tighten them with truth, even truthfulness. Pastor John MacArthur says, since the greatest part of ancient combat was hand-to-hand, -hand, a loose tunic was a, potentially, a potential hindrance and even a danger. Before a battle, it was therefore carefully cinched up and tucked into the heavy leather belt that girded the soldier's loins, his midsection. James Boyce would add that the leather belt gave the soldier a feeling of inner fortitude and strength when fighting, to have all that loose fabric tightened up and out of his way for flexibility, for movement. The same is true for hockey players 
whose jerseys have a fight tag in the back. I don't know if you know about this piece of gear. In the back of a hockey player's jersey is a piece of fabric that's stitched into the jersey so it can easily, easily be attached to the hockey pants. There's a strap. I don't know if you knew this or not, but there, there's one right on the back of the jersey. In this way, if you strap it to the back of your pants, you have that much more confidence when you're playing hockey that when you get into a fight, your jersey won't be pulled over your head. It's girded down to the pants. Now I'm going to go from hockey to the Passover because you're in Exodus 12. In Exodus 12, the Lord is giving Passover instructions for all the children of Israel. They're enslaved and have been in Egypt by Pharaoh for 400 years. And at this time, the Lord is planning to get them out of Egypt in his strength, not theirs. And through Moses, the Lord has already sent them nine plagues. We call them the nine miracles. The Passover will be the tenth and final miracle or plague that strikes Egypt. And it will be the most severe. Because the Lord is going to kill every firstborn son of every family in Egypt that is not obedient to him. So what is required for obedience to God to save your family from the loss of the firstborn son? In chapter 12, verse 3, he says, Take a lamb, one lamb for each family. In verse 6, kill the lamb at twilight. In verse 7, use the blood of the lamb to paint the door frame of your house in blood red. This will be the symbol of obedience. A doorpost, wood, wood planks, two vertical, one horizontal, painted in blood. This will be obedience to God and the only means to save your firstborn son, verse 7. Verse 8 then, have a barbecue. No, seriously, that's what it says. Roast the lamb, have a barbecue, feast. And roast them over, only over an open flame. This is barbecue talk. And I do realize that I've just lost half of y'all on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock talking barbecue talk. But what I want you to consider is this. I want you to consider what happens next in the text as, as the Lord moves from these commands about these particulars to how particularly I want you to eat this food. No one's ever told you to eat barbecue like this before. Verse 11. See it with me where the Lord says in, in chapter 12, verse 11, Now you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the house where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, I want you to see the Passover. Please don't miss the Passover. It's so important to biblical Christianity, to Judaism, to the whole of our faith. There's so many symbols here. Don't miss the Passover. See the tenth plague of Egypt that we call the tenth miracle. See it. See God execute his righteous wrath and justice on Pharaoh and Egypt, even in the death of all of the firstborn of their animals and children. But for our purposes right now, please notice, the Lord requires that Israel eat with their loins girded. He requires that they eat in a ready position. He requires that they eat with staff in hand and that they eat in haste. Have you ever made that demands of your kids when they come over for barbecue before? Why make them eat in a hurry? Why make them gird their loins? Because they're in a hostile, satanic environment. And swift action is going to be required of them. They had to be mobile and ready to move and respond quickly. Because this plague is going to have consequences. Later that night, Pharaoh tells them in chapter 12, verse 31, Get out of here. And they had to go. And that's the point. Swift Spiritual movement is only possible from a life held together in truth, with your loins girded. Fast, swift action is required of you. It's needful in hostile spiritual environments. Turn in your Bibles to John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6. 
Girding up your loins is not a foreign concept to the Roman or Hebrew mind. It was a very necessary part of life, part of culture, part of the appropriate dress code, especially for warfare. Isaiah says in Isaiah 11 verse 4 that the Lord himself will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness the belt around his waist. Our belt in Ephesians 6.14 is the belt of truth. The Greek word for truth is the word aletheia, which means truth, the content of truth. It also means truthfulness in behavior or that which corresponds to reality. You see it there in the text of John 14, verse 6, a very familiar passage to you as well when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We need to consider truth for a moment. As it relates to this belt of truth that you're to gird your loins with, what kind of truth are we talking about? What kind of truth are we talking about? Let's have a conversation about truth. As you're looking at John 14, 6, and Jesus' comment about being the truth, is Jesus saying here that he is truthful, subjectively, that in his actions and his words and in his deeds that he practices truth? Or is Jesus saying something more profound than his personal practice of truth? Is Jesus saying here that objectively, as a matter of record, as a matter of fact, as a matter of eternal consequence, that he himself is the content of all truth? What would you say? In John 14, 6, is Jesus saying that he is truthful, aletheia, or that he is truth, aletheia? Subjective action or objective content? I sure hope that you would understand that Jesus is telling his disciples on the night of glory before he dies for their sins that he is objectively in his person the full content and expression of all truth. I would hope that you understand that. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. We need to ask this question of our text in Ephesians 6, 14. Is the belt of truth that tightens the garment of our life tight to us? Is it the objective truth of Jesus Christ, the full content of his words in the Bible that express his person, his nature, his Godhead? Or subjectively, is the belt of truth our own truthfulness in our actions, words, and deeds, a life lived of truthfulness. What belt of truth holds us tight at the core of our being? The objective content of truth, the person of Christ, or subjectively, our own personal practice of truthfulness? Which, which is it? A or B? You see my smile, I gave it away. If you're feeling baited by this question, you're right. I baited you right into it. This is another Thanksgiving dessert-style question where mom comes and says, would you like apple pie or pumpkin pie as if you need to pick between the two? What is the only right answer in that instance, brothers and sisters? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. We could, you know, how could it ever be that someone could come and ask for one without necessarily bringing both. John Stott says perhaps we don't need to choose between these two alternatives. John Chow went to North Sentinel Island to offer the content of truth to the Sentinelese people. They needed, first and foremost, the content of the gospel message. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died to pay for sins. You are sinners. And the call on your life is to repent. Acts 17.30, Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. Revelation 21, verse 8, The Lord says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters, which the North Sentinelese were and are today, and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. 
The Sentinelese are murderers and unbelieving idolaters, and it is entirely loving to bring them the content of truth. To stand firm, you and I need to bathe ourselves daily in the content of truth. I remember being saved by the Lord. I remember how powerful that was. And I can tell you for two weeks, throwing my newspaper out, it was tears for three hours, reciting to myself everything that my parents had taught me. Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death on a cross, was raised to heaven, paid for my sins, and I am redeemed because of the blood of the Lamb. You need to recite that to yourself over and over again. It's got to get locked in the content of truth. That is a belt that holds you tight, is it not? But what good is it to speak truth but not live truth? What is the value of holding truth without delivering truthfulness in your conduct and in your speech? And so we conclude, yes, truth is content. And yes, truth is truthfulness in action, word, and deed. The belt of truth is a life full of truth-telling. A life where there are no lies. There is no deception. There are no hidden affections. A life where you can turn your cell phone over to anyone at any point in time for inspection. Spiritual warfare demands that you suck in your gut. You pull tight on the belt of truth to gather in any slacking and lacking that exists around the core of your person, making you swift for action because no lie is found in you. You only do truth because you know truth, you speak truth, and you practice truthfulness. Which brings us to the second point in your notes today. The second of six assets of God's armor. Number two in your notes is the breastplate of righteousness in verse 14 the breastplate of righteousness. Paul's concern has moved from the restrictive garments that need to be gathered in by the belt of truth to our greatest protection required for our vital organs in this spiritual warfare in which we're engaged. You see it there in the text when he says in chapter 16, verse 4, Stand firm, therefore, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on is the Greek verb and dusamenoi from the verb enduo, which we previously had discussed at verse 11 when Paul says to put on the full armor of God. It means to clothe. It means to dress one's self. Here in our present verse, it is a participle, and it is in the middle voice, just as the previous participle was in the middle voice, which means that this is something that you are required to do. You do it, man. You do it. Take responsibility for this yourself. This is where that line in Christianity must be crossed because this is a working out of our faith with God and with man. We are responsible to do the things that God has required us to do. And this is on the list. You be responsible. There's great self-interest expected from you in putting on your own breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate is the word thorax, which sounds awfully familiar to you, which means in this context a two-part covering for the chest and the back that protects vital organs. Physical battle requires vital organ protection. That should not come as a surprise. No Roman soldier would consider entering battle without his breastplate on. Far better would it be to go home with a bruise having been shot by an arrow than to be pierced through the lung and die in the battlefield? This is basic, right? Victory is only a value if you live, right? And the question then becomes, with what are you going to cover yourself to protect your vital organs? What makes a good breastplate? Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. John MacArthur says, Roman soldiers had different kinds of breastplates. Some of them were made out of heavy linen that hung down low and were covered with, their, covered with thin slices from hooves or horns of animals. But the most familiar type of breastplate, he says, was that molded metal chestplate that covered the vital areas of the torso from the base of the neck to the top of the thighs. 
arrows shot at this type of armor, this breastplate would just bounce off. John Chow was not wearing a physical breastplate when he approached North Sentinel Island. He was extremely vulnerable sitting in his kayak floating on the water. He probably should have been wearing something because one of the young islanders loaded a bow and shot an arrow right at John, barely missed him. The arrow firmly lodged, however, into his waterproof Bible strapped to his kayak. In Revelation 9, the Apostle John reports that locusts, locusts are going to come out of the pit of hell to torment the men and women on the earth who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. We're told in verse 9 of chapter 9 in Revelation, these locusts, they have breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots and many horses rushing to battle. And so we've got these different ideas of breastplate from our text and from experience. You could use a Bible and hold that up in front of you and it'll receive an arrow. You could use molded metal. You could use linen. And even as the locusts in Revelation 9, you could use iron. What makes for the right breastplate for us? What makes for the best breastplate for spiritual warfare? You're in Isaiah 59, verse 15, where we'll find an answer. Where Isaiah confesses to the Lord the evil and the wickedness of the nation of Israel and their rebellion toward God, and God's got a solution. He's got a plan. He's got an answer to this. He says in chapter 59, verse, not, verse 15, 59, verse 15, Isaiah says, yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. He who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. In the environment where truth is lacking in Israel, the man that turns aside from evil becomes prey. Pray to those who want to do wickedness. Pray to those who want to do evil. This sounds like our society, our culture today. This tells us that the, the score in Israel's spiritual battlefield. Their loins are not girded with truth, and anyone who attempts to do righteousness becomes a social target for those that want to continue to practice evil. It sounds a lot like the unrighteous environment that many of you find yourself working in and maybe where many of you send your children off to school, where you become a target if you speak truth. The Lord has his own answer for this environment. He's, Isaiah says, Now the Lord saw, verse 15, Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. Verse 17. He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. We asked earlier, what makes for a good breastplate? Well, you can't get any better breastplate than the one that you see your own Lord and Savior himself wearing. Here Isaiah says, righteousness is the Lord's breastplate. Turn back in your Bibles to Luke 18. Luke 18. Righteousness is the best breastplate. Righteousness is the best covering for your vital organs. Righteousness sustains life. It sustains life abundantly. Righteousness does. Victoriously. Spiritual life is accomplished in righteousness. Consider the life of Joseph, who was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of sexual misconduct. His righteousness in conduct sustained his life as God continued to bless him. But now we are back to the same question that we had to deal with when we spoke about truth. Is this objective righteousness or subjective righteousness? And I really hope that you can think through into these biblical categories. What are we dealing with here? Objective or subjective righteousness? Is the breastplate of righteousness the imputed righteousness of Christ that we live in as those who are redeemed and saved by God? Is it the content of righteousness that comes as a gift of God by faith in Christ? Or is this subjective righteousness? The thoughts, and the actions, and the speech of believers in Jesus Christ who are practicing righteousness. Is this righteousness that you produce in your own behavior through your obedient actions to God and His commands? One thing is for certain. In our text today, 
This is not self-righteousness. You're in Luke 18. I want you to look at verse 9 with me. Where we read is Luke recorded in chapter 18, verse 9, and Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves, that they themselves were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He said this to them. Here's the parable. He said, Two men went up into a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his own eyes up to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this tax collector, this sinner, this man, went to his house justified, made righteous, dikaiao, declared righteous by God. This man went to his house declared righteous, justified, rather than the other man. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Self-righteousness is a great deception of all synergistic religions of the world, and it is the danger of Arminianism as well. Self-righteousness says that you did work, you did effort that achieved right standing with God. You achieved in some effort, some action of your own will, you achieved righteous standing with God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Turning your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Philippians 3, verse 2. You did nothing, friends, to have righteousness placed onto you. You did not achieve righteousness in any way. We're told in Isaiah 64, verse 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. And so whatever you have ever thought that you did that was righteous, whatever you ever thought that you did was righteous, it is a filthy garment if it wasn't to the glory of God because you love a Savior who saved and redeemed you. It's trash. It's worthless. It was self-righteousness. We're all born wretched, vile, broken, helpless, wicked sinners without God in this world. That's where you're born. I was amazed and even shocked to hear that a local school teaches that children born into the homes of believing parents are saved and should be baptized as infants, which is to say that men in their own effort can and should declare infants to be righteous. Does that sound right to you? Are infants righteous because they were born to believing parents? Can infants be made righteous through the ceremonies and traditions of men? Does baptizing babies make them righteous eternally? Absolutely not. Righteousness is a gift of God, first and foremost. It has nothing to do with ceremony, and it has nothing to do with tradition. Righteousness has nothing to do with religious heritage. It has nothing to do with pedigree. It has, your righteousness has nothing to do with your parents. Nothing at all. Anyone who teaches such nonsense, Paul calls them words here in the text. He calls them dogs. He calls them evil workers. You see that in Philippians 3, 2, where we'll read in a second, where Paul is going to tell us about the total death of self-righteousness that he experienced and the great value of imputed righteousness, which God lavished onto him, saying in verse 2 of Philippians 3, he says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, he says, I far more. And he's going to roll out his credentials here. 
He says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I was found blameless, he says. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but dung, rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and that I may be found in Him not having, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, some action that I performed, not at all, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul says here in the text, I'm the best religious man you ever saw. I've lived the best life. I have it all. But nothing that I am ever contributed in the slightest to the righteousness given to me by God on the basis of faith. And even faith in Christ had to be given to Paul by God. Because you'll remember that formerly this man, Paul, was Saul. And he didn't believe in Jesus Christ at all. He was going around killing people who believed in Jesus Christ. So for Paul, righteousness must be the imputed righteousness that believers receive by God. Righteousness has to come by way of God's gift. A free gift that he gives to you, regardless of how you've sinned, regardless of how you've blasphemed his name. He comes right over the top of all of your sin and places onto your head a gift that you never deserved. That's grace. And that's beautiful. That's salvation. Turning your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3, let's see more of this. Let's see more of this. Zechariah 3. Perhaps you're asking, what then is imputed righteousness? I've said this a few times and I want to take the time to explain it. I want to give you a sampling of imputed righteousness in the text today. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is a verse loaded with double imputation. Jesus was sinless, and yet God imputed our sins onto Jesus at the cross, which is to say our sins were placed onto Jesus as if he owned them, they were his. Because of the imputation of our sins unto Jesus and Jesus satisfying the wrath of God, propitiating and satisfying the wrath of God against our sins on that cross, because of this, God the Father imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. He clothes us in Jesus' very own righteousness. That is how the Father sees us, with Christ's blanket of righteousness cloaking us. There's nothing more beautiful than that. Friends, I would ask you maybe this question as you think about imputed righteousness. What did you do to be righteous in God's sight? What did you do? What did you do? Action. What did you do? You did nothing. Your righteousness comes because he did everything. And he gave you a gift. This is where righteousness comes from. God is the giver of all grace and the giver of righteousness. And it is, great, it is his great joy to give righteousness as a free gift to those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's why he gives the gift. You're in Zechariah verse, chapter 3, Zechariah 3, where Zechariah is given a vision by the Lord that very helpfully presents the imputed righteousness that God gives, which allows any of us to stand in his presence. Zechariah says in chapter 3, verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua, 
the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. What a picture. What gave Satan the ability to make accusations against Joshua in verse 1? Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. You see, even Satan knows that no one gets to heaven in filthy garments. You can't be in heaven and have filthy garments. He knows this. And so Satan, full of anger and hatred, rage, disdain for the children of God, he accuses Joshua of wrongdoing, probably saying all manner of evil against him falsely, how he shouldn't be allowed into heaven. But what makes the Lord think about this? What, 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 what does the Lord think about what is being communicated by Satan and Joshua's condition? What does the Lord think about it? Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? That's God's free will right there. That's God's free will. Is that he can reach into the fire called earth where all sin and rebellion is happening and he can pluck out those brands from the fire. Zechariah records for us in chapter 3, verse 4, the Lord spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. And then I said, this is Zechariah, this is funny, because he pitches in here and he's got an idea, like, I know how to clothe him too. Let's add some stuff to this. And so Zechariah says, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is objective, God-directed, imputed righteousness without which no one will see God. This is dirty rags swapped out for festal robes. How do you like this picture of imputed righteousness? This is what you need. You need righteousness imputed to you because you're loaded with filthy garments, unworthy of heaven, unfit for heaven. But, this is the righteous, but is this the righteousness that Paul has in mind for the spiritual armor that we're discussing? Turn back in your Bibles to Titus 2. Titus 2. For Christians, it is far, far too easy to live in the knowledge of God's imputed righteousness and not practice and demonstrate that we are the only ones on the face of the earth who know something about righteousness, about doing righteousness. Has God designed that we will win the spiritual war with Satan strictly on his righteousness alone? Or has God designed that our spiritual victory will include our delivery and practice of obedience and righteousness? This one, the latter one, that's what we're after. God wants obedient creatures. That's why he put the Holy Spirit into us. Because without the Spirit, we would never repent, believe, or obey. But with the Spirit, we can repent, believe, and obey. We can meet his objectives. God's glory is tied to the practice of righteousness, and that's why he put his Spirit in us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 29 says that if, any, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. 1 John 3.10 says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Romans 6.18 says, Having been freed from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. Revelation 19, verses 7 and 8 says, At the marriage of Jesus Christ to his bride, the church, that the bride herself will clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is da, 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 the righteous acts of the saints. Do you need to practice righteousness? You bet you do. Your righteous deeds are adorning the bride of Christ. That's important to you, or it should be. What other benefits come from practicing righteousness? Well, right now, today, in my own personal life, I get to experience joy and peace and love. I get to deliver the glory of God, and spiritual protections of my most vital organs are happening to me in my practice of righteousness as I engage in spiritual warfare with Satan. Our righteous deeds are our breastplate. The practice of righteousness is what Paul has in view in chapter 6, verse 14. John MacArthur says, we cannot put on what God has already clothed us with. We are permanently dressed in the imputed righteousness of Christ. 
throughout our lives on earth and throughout all of eternity. He says the breastplate of righteousness is the practical righteousness of a life lived in obedience to God's word. Do you see the difference? You need to have both, the imputed righteousness of Christ, but what Paul's calling for is a breastplate of righteousness, something that you practice and you deliver and you prove to yourself that God has given this to you to wear spiritually and your actions will prove that you're wearing it. That's what's going on in the text. You're in Titus 2, verse 11, where Paul tells Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Righteous living is the shield that must cover our chest. It means living the kind of life that is above reproach, above any false allegation against your character. Righteous living means that you are always found to be doing right by man's standard and the Lord's standard. The Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And I would dare qualify that and tell you this. I'm looking at that text and I'm saying, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the practice of righteousness. Do you hunger and thirst to practice righteousness? The Lord says in the Sermon on the Mount, practice righteousness. That's what I read there. Cotton Mather. Cotton Mather was a third-generation ardent Calvinist Puritan preacher in New England whose father was also in pastoral ministry, and he joined his father at age 22. The year was 19, or 16, sorry, 1685. At the same time that he joined his father in ministry, the charter for the existence of the Massachusetts Bay Colony was being revoked. So it was a big challenge for their society, for their culture. It was the Mathers, Cotton and his father, Increase, Increase and Cotton Mather. It was their reputation for righteousness that caused all of New England to look to their leadership in opposition of England's authoritarian colonial control. England sent their man, Sir Edmund Andros, to assume control of New England. Historian Nate Pickowitz, he writes this. He says, on April 18th, 1689, Boston took up arms against Andros's government. Cotton Mather being one of the chief designers of the revolt. At noon, Bostonians gathered to hear from Mather, and at 2 p.m. an armed militia stormed Fort Hill, captured Governor Andros, deposed him, and put him on a ship and sent him back to England without bloodshed or plunder. Cotton Mather said the whole ordeal, he said it was, with as much order as ever attended any tumult in the world. What were you doing at age 26? What was your reputation in your community? What are you known for? Cotton Mather was 26 years old and led a revolt that had Governor Andros lifted and removed and sent off to England. Failure to practice righteousness will rob you of your joy. It'll rob you of your peace. It'll rob you of your eternal security. And we cannot allow any of those things to happen at Community Bible Church. I'm commanding you on behalf of the Lord Pursue righteous lives. Young men, practice righteousness. Put on the full armor of God. Brothers and sisters, you will find that it suits you so well. It suits you like a well-fit, custom-made Roman breastplate, but one that's suited for spiritual warfare. We're engaged in this spiritual warfare. God is our strength. He supplied our armor and our assets for this victory that we're going to have in our spiritual warfare. We discussed the belt of truth. We discussed the breastplate of righteousness. You, friends, we are obligated to put them on, to do truthfulness and to do righteousness. The burden falls on you, Christian, for the glory of God, for the health of our body, Community Bible Church, and for your own joy and peace, put them on and stand firm against the schemes of Satan. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for this time with the brothers and sisters and to be encouraged even in my own soul to know that you are our strength, you are our comfort. Our righteousness is gifted to us from you. And as a result of what you have done to us, let us honor you 
praise you, show our love for you and our obedience to you as we take up the full armor of God, trusting you that the spiritual victory is won. It is absolutely won. And you require obedience, truthfulness, and righteousness in our inner person in actions that we show to our friends, our family, and our church community. May you get that from each and every one of us here today and always, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.